This afternoon we begin with a reading of Psalm 140, and that's going to be what we talk about also today. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, deliver me, O Lord, from evil men, preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Selah. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purpose to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. Selah. I said to the Lord, You are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. This is, again, uh, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, a psalm of the antithesis. And what that means is that it's a psalm that can only be sung by those whose cause is righteous before God. If we are engaged in a conflict with wicked men and our cause is wicked, then it's not possible for us to make this prayer of David a prayer of our own. Or if we are on the wrong side, and our enemy is righteous, and we are wicked, again, it would not be possible for us to uh, take this prayer and make it our own. This is the prayer of one who has uh, the standing of a righteous man before God, and who prays to God for vindication in the cause that is between him and his enemy. This comes out in the fact that David emphasizes in this psalm that his conflict is with violent men. Notice that he uses that term, violent men, three times in the psalm. You see it first in verse 1, preserve me from violent men. He repeats the same petition in verse 4, and then again in verse 11 he says, Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. So the emphasis of David is on the attack of a violent man against him as one who is righteous. Now, when we look up that word violence in the scripture, we find that it can, on one hand, refer to physical violence. So if we Look at Genesis 49, verse 5. We find uh, Jacob um, 
condemning his sons, Simeon and Levi, for their cruel violence against the men of Shechem, after the prince of Shechem had raped their sister Dinah. Or in Judges chapter 9, we find that uh, Abimelech was condemned for his violence in killing his 70 brothers, the sons of Gideon. So it's physical violence in those cases. But there are other examples in the scriptures where this word violence refers to uh, verbal violence, to wicked speech. So you find in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, these words, Exodus 23, verse 1, You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. That means actually a witness of violence. That is a witness who by his words expresses violence against the one he accuses. Sarah, in Genesis chapter 16, complained to Abraham about the violence that Hagar had done to her. And this was probably not physical violence, though it's not further identified there. This was probably Hagar taking advantage of what she felt to be her superior position after bearing Abraham a son, which Sarah had failed to do, mocking and insulting her mistress because of that. It was probably then a verbal kind of violence that she was doing. And if you look just at one more place in the scriptures, Proverbs chapter 10, verses 6 and 11, you have the same prayer or the same statement made twice in those two verses. Violence covers the mouth of the wicked. So you get the uh, picture here of a wicked man who's using his mouth wickedly, and his mouth is executing the violence that is done in his heart, the violence that is imagined in his heart. Violence covers his mouth. And this seems, this verbal violence seems to be the problem that David has here in Psalm 140 as well. In, again, in three different verses, he mentions the speech of his enemies. First of all, in verse 3, they sharpen their tongues like a serpent, The poison of asps is under their lips. And then again in verse 9, let the evil of their lips cover them. And in verse 11, let not a slanderer be established in the earth. So the complaint that David has here, as frankly in many other Psalms, is the wicked words which his enemies were speaking against him. And this is then a, uh, something that we can take hold of for our own uh, instruction, I think. This is not the kind of thinking we have, I think, in our modern times. When we talk about violence, we're talking about physical violence. The scriptures don't limit physical violence, the violence to physical violence. They talk about violence as being committed with our words as well. And they classify then the, these violent words, these lips of violence, 
as transgressions, not just against the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness, but as sins against the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. There is murder done with our tongues. That's what this is all about. And the Lord hates this violence. In Psalm 11, verse 5, we have an example of the Lord's hatred of this violence. Psalm 11, verse 5, where we read this, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And what were the wicked men doing in Psalm 11? They were saying, flee as a bird to your mountain. The wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart, and so on. So it's verbal violence also, at least probably, in Psalm 11 as well. The Lord hates this. And this then... From this, we can begin to ask the question, well, can we then more uh, precisely identify the occasion on which David wrote this psalm? It could be perhaps related to the time of Saul when we know have at least one example of a man who spoke evil against David, Doeg the Edomite. Doeg did evil not to David directly, but to David's friends, Abiathar and the priests at Nob. We can certainly refer to the time of Absalom's rebellion, when Absalom was uh, undermining the confidence of the people in David by uh, subtly criticizing David for failing in the exercise of judgment for the people. And you could even refer to Ahithophel, David's friend, who betrayed him and went over to Absalom's side, look at the kinds of things that Ahithophel said with his mouth when he was advising Absalom. In the last few verses of 2 Samuel 16, beginning at verse 21, Absalom asks Ahithophel for advice, and Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines. whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are strong with you will be, who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went in to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. That was evil words that Ahithophel was uh, giving to Absalom, and they were evil words against David, designed to destroy David's reputation among the people. And then again in 2 Samuel 17, the first few verses, Absalom, Ahithophel further advises Absalom about how to conduct the war. Let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. So it's easy to imagine, I think, that um, David was writing this psalm in those circumstances. Or in the psalm that we were uh, singing a few minutes ago, Psalm 7, David complains about Cush, a Benjamite. And he um, talks in that psalm about the false accusation that Cush had made against him. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, 
or have plundered my enemy without cause. These were the words of Cush the Benjamite about David. These are the kinds of things then that David has in mind here. We can't precisely identify the occasion. But these are the kinds of things that David has in mind when he says that these evil men sharpen their tongues like a serpent and the poison of asps is under their lips. Now there's one more thing that we want to notice about the structure of this psalm, and that is that the central verse, the psalm has 13 verses, and the central verse, verse 7, is the most important verse in the psalm. And notice what it says, O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. It's an expression of confidence in the Lord. So this is not a psalm then in which David is is deeply troubled and anxious and fearful about the attacks of his enemies. This is a psalm governed by this uh, confidence that David has that the Lord will indeed protect him and preserve his life. Before this central verse, we have David praying particularly for himself. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. That's the theme of the first six verses. But in the last part of the psalm, verses 8 and following, he prays not for himself, but against his enemies. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. So that's how we're going to divide up the psalm as we talk about it now. We're going to consider it under the theme, praying for deliverance from violent men. First, praying for himself, verses 1 to 6. Secondly, trusting in the Lord, verse 7. And then finally, praying against his enemies, verses 8 to 13. Now, the two selahs that you find in the first uh, five verses of the psalm mark for us two significant divisions, further divisions in the psalm. And you can see these very readily. In verses 1 to 3, you begin with a prayer for preservation and deliverance, and it's followed by a description of what his enemies are doing. And it ends with Selah, verse 3. In verse 4, he begins again with a prayer for preservation. Keep me, O Lord, preserve me. And again, he describes what his enemies are doing, the rest of verses 4 and 5, and ends with the Selah. And then in verse 6, he concludes this section with a final petition, Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. So what we want to do first is look at what he says about his enemies, then say a few words about those petitions, preserve me and deliver me, and finally look at that last petition, Hear the voice of my supplications. David talks about these enemies then in verse 1 as evil men. It's very clear that to in David's mind, that these are men who are transgressors of the law. Men who, in their attack on him, are committing sin. This is what makes it possible for him to take the stance of a righteous man and to say, these men have no just cause for attacking me. Their attack on me is evil. They are transgressing your commandments. That's why I bring my prayer to you. We've already talked about the violence of the rest of verse 1, so we're going to go on now to verse 2, 
who plan evil things in their heart. These are men, then, who are not doing evil to David spontaneously as they see occasion in their daily contacts with David, but men who are taking time in their own homes and in their own councils to think about what they want to do to David. They hate him, and they're planning evil against him. Thirdly, he says, they continually gather together for war. Or if you look at some of the modern, more modern translations, you see they continually stir up war. And I think that's probably better. What, what they're aiming at here is not just that they themselves should find opportunity to attack David, but they are stirring up war against him. They want others to join them in their attacks on David. So they make their plans They say, we would like some help, we would like as many to help us as possible, and so let's go out and stir up war against David. And then finally, he says in these first three verses, they sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now the idea of that serpent, of course, is first of all, subtlety. Now the serpent, Genesis 3 verse 1 says, was more subtle than any beast of the field. These are crafty men guileful men, men who know how to conceal their intentions under smooth words and keep what they are doing hidden from David as long as possible until he has fallen into their snares. They're very crafty sorts of people. That's first in there. And the second thing is the malice. The serpent is a symbol of malice in the scriptures as well. And they certainly have malice against David. They hate him. And they want to do him harm. So that's the the first three verses, what he says about his enemies. Let's go on then to verses 4 and 5 and notice what he says about them there. He begins by describing them as the wicked. That's pretty much a synonym of evil in verse 1. and means, again, that they were transgressing God's law in their attack on him. Notice, but also that he gives us some additional details. Verse 4, the end, who have purposed to make my steps stumble. Here's a little bit about the plans that they were making. David doesn't identify precisely how they were trying to uh, ensnare him or to make him stumble, but he does identify the purpose of their plan. Their plan was to make him stumble. They, They were not particularly interested in destroying his life, apparently, at this time, on this particular occasion, but they were interested in making his steps stumble. They wanted to tempt him, either by their cruel words or by their deceitful lies, into into falling away from the path of righteousness. They wanted him to forsake the law of his God. They purposed to make his steps stumble. And then he goes on to say, The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They've spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. And the whole idea, of course, is that they're trying, by their evil words against him, somehow to ensnare him into their traps, to make him fall and be caught. And they are the proud, those who have taken it upon themselves to attack one of God's poor 
and afflicted ones. And to resist the purpose and ways of God himself. There are three, then, figures of speech that David uses here in these six verses. He first compares his enemies to warriors. They continually gather together or stir up war. Secondly, he compares them to serpents. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. They're full of malice and guile. And finally, he compares them to hunters. They have hidden a snare for me and cords. Now his prayer against them is, first of all, deliver me. I think we should see in this first verse that there are really two somewhat distinct petitions. To deliver is somewhat distinct from preserve. When he says, deliver me, he means, I think, first, take me out of these circumstances. Get me away from these enemies to a place of safety where they can no longer get at me. And ultimately, he means, deliver me from this life of trouble, this life of trial and temptation in which I walk every day, and take me to heaven where there will be no more such temptations. That's what deliver means. Let me escape from these circumstances. But when he talks about preserve, he means that he wants, while he is enduring this temptation, to be kept from falling. So he has both things in mind. While I have to endure, while I have to wait for your deliverance, preserve me. And the same petition then is repeated two more times in verse 4. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men. So that's the the circumstances of the psalm insofar as we know them. An attack of wicked men on David, a verbal attack of some sort, of wicked men on David, they're slandering him, they're attacking him to his face, insulting and mocking him, whatever it may be, we don't know for sure, but there's a verbal attack, a wicked verbal attack against David that's full of malice and guile, that's well-planned, that intends to make his steps stumble. And so David concludes this first part of the psalm with a petition to be heard. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. We've seen these petitions often in the psalms. Very often, in fact, they occur at the beginning of the psalm, but not always, and here obviously not. But notice the ground of that petition in the first part of the verse. I said to the Lord, You are my God. You are my God. That's why I come to you, he says. You are my God. And when he he makes that statement, he's not saying, uh, I have chosen you to be my God. As a pagan might, for example, choose to go to the God of the harvest 
and say to him, you are my God because I need a good harvest now and I know that you can help me. So he, he makes his choice of the gods that he acknowledges and he goes to that God. That's not what David is saying here when he says, you are my God. He, what he's saying here is, you are my God because you have chosen me and you have made yourself my God. You see how much stronger the argument is when we understand it from the biblical perspective. David is not saying, I come to you because I have chosen you. He's, he's saying, I come to you because you have chosen me, because you have made me your own, because you have become my God. You have spoken your promise to me. I will be your God. You have bound yourself to me with a covenant. You have sworn an oath to me that you will be my God. You have sworn by yourself an unbreakable oath that you will be my God. And therefore, I come to you, and I come to you expecting that you will hear me because of what you have chosen to be to me. I said to the Lord, I said this to the Lord because of what he said first to me, and now I come to you, O Lord, my God, and I ask you to hear my supplications, to keep me, to deliver me, and to preserve me. And that leads then, of course, right into verse 7, the central verse of the psalm. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Now, there are three things that we want to notice. The, the main thing, of course, is that this is an expression of confidence in the Lord. And it's out of this confidence that David prays throughout this psalm that the Lord is indeed his God, the strength of his salvation, the one who covers his head in the day of battle. But there are three things, three particular things we want to notice about that confession of David. He says first, he uses first two names of God. Yahweh, notice that God is in capital letters, so it's Yahweh, Lord. Those two names. That name Yahweh is the personal name of our God. And it's the name which he himself explained to Moses in Exodus 3. That means I am that I am. Or simply I am. I am the God who exists. I am the God who is eternal. I am the God who is unchangeable. I am the God who is absolutely self-sufficient. I am the God exalted above all creatures and above all other gods. I am great. I am great in majesty, great in glory, great in power, great in righteousness, great in all my attributes. And, of course, God revealed that name to Moses in the context of fulfilling his promise. So he's saying, you need to know this name so that you know how I act towards my people whom I have chosen as my own covenant people. I am towards them, Yahweh. I am the eternally unchangeable and faithful God of the covenant. I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you sons of Jacob, 
are not consumed. David appeals then to that name of Yahweh here. In the second place, he uses the name Lord, Adonai. And this name, I think, has a two-pronged force to it. In the first place, though David doesn't use the personal pronoun here, he means, you are my Lord. And you are my Lord in a very special way. You are my Lord because you have redeemed me, because you have purchased me, because you have made me, you have taken me as your servant. And you have promised me your care, and you have brought me into your household as your servant. You've made me a part of that whole household, and you've made me a part of all the benefits and wealth and abundance of that household. I appeal to you, therefore, as my master, the one who owns me body and soul. And I commit myself wholly, therefore, into your hands. But this the other prong of this name is that he is the Lord of David's enemies as well. Not in that special sense that he is David's Lord, for he has not redeemed them and brought them into his household, but in the sense that he is their creator and that he also owns them as their creator, and that he has power over them, and that he will be, according to his sovereign power, their master. So David appeals to these two sides of God's lordship, and he says, I commit myself to you, my master and their master. He also speaks of God, then, as the strength of my salvation. We may say two things about that name. First of all, he is, the Lord is his salvation. I am your salvation. That's why his son bears the name Jesus. Yahweh saves, or simply Savior. In him is salvation, and only in him. And David turns to the Lord as the one who is salvation and who alone grants salvation. Salvation is of the Lord, he says in Psalm 3. But notice also he says, you are the strength of my salvation. And what that means then is not only that the Lord has saved him, but that now the Lord maintains and defends and preserves that salvation in him. That the Lord makes that salvation inviolable for him. The Lord stands between him and his enemies in such a way that his enemies cannot touch that saving work that God has done for him and in him. He is the strength, the defense, the upholder, the maintainer of David's salvation. David commits himself then to that one who has set himself about him as a shield. And finally, he says of him in this verse, you have covered my head in the day of battle. He goes back to that first figure he had used of his enemies. They gather for war, or they stir up war. And he says in the war that they stir up, you give me a helmet to protect my head. And this, we may say, is a synecdoche for the whole armor of salvation. As Paul describes it in Ephesians 6, the helmet, the breastplate, the shoes, the belt, the shield, all these different parts of the equipment of the Christian warrior by which God defends him against his enemies. 
David also talks about this equipping for war in Psalm 18, and I want to read a few verses from that psalm to show you how strong is David's confidence in the Lord here. You will find that beginning in verse 29 and going on for a few verses after that. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord and who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. And then he goes on from this talk about how the Lord prepared him for battle to how he had uh, pursued and overtaken his enemies. Verse 37. So the Lord, who is his salvation, has given him a sure protection, a sure defense against the attacks of his enemies. You have covered my head (coughs) in the day of battle. That's what governs this psalm, that thought. That's the confidence out of which David speaks. You are Yahweh, the faithful covenant God, my master and the master of my enemies. You are the strength of my salvation. You cover my head in the day of battle. David is fully confident that his enemies can have no ruinous effect upon him. In verses 8 to 13 then, he prays against his enemies. He begins with a prayer that the Lord will not grant their desires or further their wicked schemes. The wicked have desires against him. We've already talked about their fundamental desire that his steps will stumble. That's what they want. They want his steps to stumble. And we've talked about the plan. We don't know what the details of the plan were, but they had made a wicked scheme against him. And they were planning to execute that scheme. David comes to the Lord and he says to the Lord, Do not grant their desire. Do not further their wicked scheme. Now that is, of course, an acknowledgement of the Lord's absolute sovereignty over his enemies. The enemies can have an effect on him. Can bring him into trouble and trial only insofar as the Lord himself in his sovereignty permits it. We may use Satan attacking Job as the example here. Satan cannot do anything more to Job than God himself allows Satan to do. And David is saying here to the Lord, I know then that you are sovereign. I know that it is within your power to grant the desire of the wicked. I know that it is within your power to further their wicked schemes. 
And he's acknowledging, I think we have to recognize this too, that insofar as his enemies do trouble him, that is according to the Lord's will, according to the Lord's sovereign decree. The Lord governs his enemies. And what David is saying here is, then, preserve me. Do not allow them to go so far as to bring me to ruin. Do not grant their desire. Do not further their scheme. And so what David is doing here is he's setting, in these two verses, is he's setting two things, isn't he, over against each other. On the one hand, he's saying, the Lord is sovereign over my trials and my temptations and my difficulties. He's sovereign over my enemies' attacks against me. But I know that his purpose is to try and to test me with fiery trials and so to purify my faith. And I know that he will not permit me to be tempted beyond what I am able to bear. Therefore, he is the strength of my salvation also. While he is absolutely sovereign and while I may uh, be greatly troubled by his heavy hand upon me through my enemies, Nevertheless, I set this over against it. He is my God. He is the one who has helmeted me with salvation, who has promised me that he will not allow my enemies to overwhelm me. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. In verses 9 and 10, then David prays for judgment. In verse 8, it's prevention of their scheme and their desire. In verses 9 and 10, it's prayer for judgment. Let your judgment come upon them. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. What he means by that second phrase there, I think, people of God, is simply this. Let what they planned against me and what they spoke against me come back on themselves. Let them fall in the pit that they dug. Let the evil they intended fall down on their own heads. Let the evil they spoke against me happen to them. Let your justice be at work, O Lord, to bring justice against my wicked enemies. But in verse 10, he prays, I think, for final judgment, for the destruction and ruin of the wicked. Let burning coals fall upon them. We cannot help but be reminded of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let them be cast into the fire. In Revelation, John calls it the lake of fire, into deep pits that they rise not up again. Destroy them, O Lord. Destroy all the wicked in your righteous judgment. And then, while they wait for this judgment, do not let them be established in the earth. Verse 11. I think what he means here is, just as they plan to trouble my life, to make my life miserable, to make me fall into sin, and so on, so trouble their lives. Do not let them have a stable and secure life here on earth. Let evil hunt them. Let harm hunt them. 
all the days of their life until finally you overthrow them altogether. That's his prayer against these wicked men. Verses 12 and 13 then are the concluding verses of the psalm. Where what David does here is he takes what he has said about himself in the first 11 verses and he really applies it to us. Notice how he talks here. He doesn't talk personally anymore. He's been talking very personally all through the first 11 verses. Now it's not personal anymore. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. He's talking about the afflicted and the poor. He's one of them. But these afflicted and poor are those who are afflicted and poor like David. That is, they are the afflicted and poor among the righteous. They are those who are afflicted and poor because of the attacks and the oppression of the wicked. And David uses yet a fourth figure here with his enemies. He's talked about them as warriors who attack him, as serpents who use guile and malice against him, as hunters who set snares for him. Now he talks about them as if they're accusers and prosecutors. And they bring their case to God as Satan brought his case to God against Job. And they want to bring him then into condemnation with his God. David says, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. But how does he know it? Well, he knows it because he has seen the testimony of it in the sacrifices, the atoning sacrifices, which he and all the people of God had been offering for many years. He has seen and understood that his righteousness is not his own. If it were, he could not stand in the judgment of God. Psalm 130 is very clear about that. If you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He knows that very well. But he stands in the judgment of God because of the righteousness of the Lamb of God, the blood shed on his behalf. And he knows then that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted, the cause of his afflicted people, Because they are covered by that blood. He knows that there is justice for the poor, which vindicates them, does not accuse and condemn them, but vindicates them against their enemies, even against their great accuser, Satan himself, in the eyes of God, because there is justice already accomplished in the bloody sacrifice. This is the universal truth for all God's afflicted and poor people that David confesses. He takes what he has learned for himself and he says to us, really, I know that the Lord will maintain your cause. Do you know that he will do so as well? Surely the righteous then shall give thanks 
to your name. You have redeemed them. You have become their God. You deliver them from the hand of wicked men so that they may give thanks to your name. They will fulfill the purpose for which you have called them. And finally, the upright shall dwell in your presence. That is, they will finally attain that glory which you have promised. Again, I think there are several psalms that help us to see the details of what that means. You find one passage in verse in Psalm 11 again. Notice, beginning at verse 4, His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and the burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. They will dwell in his presence. And then in Psalm 16, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 17, the last verse, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. That promise at the end of Psalm 140 is a promise to hold on to in times of temptation and trial. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Do not fall into sin. Do not let the attacks of your enemies discourage you and overthrow your faith. The upright shall dwell in your presence. He who is the Lord, Yahweh, he who is your God, he who is the strength of salvation, will surely preserve you in the day of battle and deliver you ultimately from all tears and trials and temptations into the everlasting glory of his kingdom. May God bless his word.